Welcome to Murderous America. Hey guys, welcome back to episode three of Murderous America. In case you forgot, I'm Maya Tate. And I'm Oscar Shola. Happy Halloween, everyone. So we did kind of lie to you guys. We are not in Wisconsin this week. Yeah, I know at the end of last episode, we said we'd be taking you guys to Wisconsin, but then we took last week off. So don't worry, you'll be getting Wisconsin next week. But I thought that this case made more sense to come out today. Where are we this week, Maya? So this week we're in Connecticut. This is the murder of Martha Moxley. We are starting in the Bellhaven neighborhood of Greenwich, Connecticut. And this was a very affluent and wealthy neighborhood. And this murder would be the first that the police department had to deal with in 30 years. In 30 years? Dang, they never saw anything. Yeah, well, I mean, I said it was pretty um, affluent, prominent, wealthy. And it was also just very safe. That's what people thought. Gotham could never. Martha Moxley was born on August 16, 1960, to parents John David and Dorothy in San Francisco. The family then moved to Bellhaven in 1974, and Martha quickly made friends. She introduced herself to all of her neighbors and everyone at school right away. According to her friend Tori Holland, Martha had become the it girl from California, and everybody loved her. It was the night of October 30th, 1975. Mischief night, as the teens in the neighborhood called it. That was the night everyone would go out and ding-dong ditch their neighbors or throw toilet paper into trees. Basically, just a night full of harmless pranks. John David Moxley was out of town for work, so it was just Martha and Dorothy at home. And I did find that Martha had a brother, but I couldn't find anything about whether he was older or younger, if he was there or not. So we're just going to stick with Martha and Dorothy. Martha was actually grounded on this date at this time. But like every high schooler, she didn't want to miss out on the fun. So... She was trying to convince Dorothy to let her go out for mischief night, especially because she was still kind of new in the area. Dorothy eventually broke down and let her go out, but said she had to be home by 930. So Martha went out with her friends and they went over to the Skakel residence across the street. She was friends with two of the Skakel children, Thomas, who was 17, and Michael, who was the same age as Martha, 15. The friends all sat in Michael's car in the Skakel driveway around 9 listening to, you know, the popular music of the time. Martha was sitting up front between the brothers. Mm -hmm. At 9.30, the oldest Skakel brother came out and said that he needed to use the car to take their cousin, Jimmy Terrian, home to watch the premiere of Monty Python's Flying Circus. Michael decides to go with them, leaving Martha and her friends with Tommy. The group made their way to the Skakel's pool, and they were hanging out like normal, but eventually Martha's friends decided to leave because they could tell that Things were getting pretty flirty between Tommy and Martha. And they were feeling a little uncomfy, but I don't know. They all sort of just trying to let them be. And so this was happening past 9.30, which was when Dorothy wanted Martha home. But since it was mischief night, she wasn't too concerned about her not being home right away. She just assumed she was out with her friends and she'd be back later. But around 1 a.m., when Martha still hadn't come home, Dorothy contacted the police just to let them know They did a brief search of the area, didn't find anything, and she just assumed that Martha was still out with her friends. Mm -hmm. But she did call her friends to find out and didn't hear anything back. But the police told her not to worry. The next morning, Martha still wasn't home. So Dorothy walked over to the Skakel's house and Michael answered the door. 
and Dorothy could tell that he was extremely hungover. She still introduced herself and asked if Martha was there, and he said no. So she called the police again, and this time they came to the scene. They got a group of Martha's friends together, and they all began searching the area of just the neighborhood and the Moxley property, which was huge. Around 11 a.m., a friend of Martha's found her body underneath a tree toward the back of the property, and her friend Tori Holland remembers this. And I could see Mrs. Moxley at the front door, and she's going. She didn't want me to come any further. But I could see the devastation with Mrs. Moxley. Martha had been beaten so badly that investigators couldn't even tell what color her hair was. It was just caked in blood. Her pants and her underwear had also been pulled down, and a few feet away from the tree, investigators found a six-iron Tony Penna golf club broken into pieces. Police also discovered a pile of blood around the driveway where they believed she was killed and then moved under the tree. Martha had been struck so violently over the head with the club that the shaft broke, and a piece was even stuck through her neck. They believed that she had died between 9.30 and 10 p.m. the night before. Was she, like, sexually assaulted or something? So the police couldn't find any evidence of that. Um, when they brought her in and everything, there was no sign of sexual assault whatsoever. So that was really a mystery. Now, this was interesting for a couple of reasons. The golf club, that is. That specific brand was unique and expensive. And the only people in Belhaven to have a set were the Skakels. Red flag, red flag, red flag. So let's talk about the Skakels a little bit. Tommy and Michael Skakel were two of seven Skakel children, the third and fifth, respectively. Their parents were Rushton and Ann Skakel. And like the other families in Belhaven, they were very wealthy and prominent. And Rushton had inherited his father's extremely successful coal company, which is where he got all of his riches. But that wasn't what lifted the Skakels to prominence in America. Rushton's sister, Ethel, had married Bobby Kennedy in 1950, and at this point was his widow. And this really went to their heads, because the Kennedys, as you may know, were considered American royalty, even into the 70s. Mm -hmm. It really went to their head. They basically just thought they were better than everyone. And these children, who would have grown up rich regardless, considered themselves a part of the Kennedy dynasty. So as I was saying, the Skagel children were already very spoiled, but things got worse in 1973 when their mother Anne died from brain cancer. Rushton, who was a violent alcoholic, didn't really see the need to parent his children and then gave them unlimited access to money and never punished them for anything. Their father traveled quite a bit. They were allowed to do whatever they'd like. They definitely got into a lot of trouble. There was a lot of partying going on in that house. And at the time of Martha's murder, he had been away on a hunting trip, so he wasn't even there. Following his mother's death, Michael began abusing alcohol, and he was only 13. How did he get alcohol at 13? It was just in the house. He didn't need anything. Crazy. Another interesting fact was the day of Martha's murder, so October 30th, Rushton had just hired a new live-in tutor named Kenneth Littleton, and he had moved into the residence that day. Now, both Tommy and Michael were known to have bad tempers, especially when it came to each other. They were always very competitive, and that was really heightened when it came to girls, especially when it came to Martha, who they both, or said to say, had massive crushes on her. Back to the golf club. The golf club found at the scene belonged to Ann Skakel. It even had her initials on the shaft. And it was known in the neighborhood that all seven of the Skakel kids would use the golf clubs for recreation and just leave them around the yard. They didn't care much. It was just a toy for them. But when the police arrived at the Skakel home for questioning, 
they found the set of golf clubs missing the six iron. Martha Moxley's funeral took place on November 4th with an attendance of about 500 people. Oh, she was liked around, I guess. Yeah, and while the mourners gathered, the police dug deeper into the life of Martha. They read through her diary and found a few passages that seemed to shine new insight on the relationships between Martha, Tommy, and Michael. So the diary entry from September 12th, 1975 says, Went driving in Tom's car, and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee. As you heard in that, it kind of shows that there could be some relationship between Martha and Tom. Now, this next section from her diary comes from October 4th of that year. I went to a party. Tom S. was being an ass. At the dance, he kept putting his arms around me and making moves. And as we mentioned before, Michael had a drinking problem already. And that bothered Martha. At least that's what investigators believe from this section of her diary from about a month before she was murdered. Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on. Michael jumps to conclusions. I really have to stop going over there. At the beginning of the investigation, Russian was very cooperative. Until the police started asking more in-depth questions, that is. Michael told the police that he had gone to his cousin's house to watch the new Monty Python movie that night. And when he got home later that night, around 11.30, he just went to bed. And Tommy said that he came inside after hanging out with Martha and her friends, went up to his room to write a paper on Abraham Lincoln for school, and a little after 10, he came back downstairs to watch a movie with Kenneth. Investigators also talked to Tommy's teachers and found out that none of them had assigned a paper about Abraham Lincoln. But months passed and no official arrests were made. The police kept questioning basically everybody in the Skakel home, but obviously focusing on Tommy. He was their prime suspect. Then the Skakel stopped cooperating, and they had no new leads. Police did question Kenneth, however, a couple months later. They questioned him about the murder, and he gave them everything he knew. And then again, a few years later, after he had been fired by Rushton, police talked to him again. And at this point in his life, he had moved to Nantucket and gotten involved with drugs, alcohol, and had gotten in trouble for some petty larceny. But they did initially think that this massive change in character for him could have been a result of the murder and feeling guilty for it. But they really had no real motive as to why... Kenneth would have done that. He didn't know Martha. He just moved there. And and investigators concluded that Martha's murder was personal. Mm-hmm. There wouldn't be that much rage by just a random... He had no motive, basically. Yeah. So the case went cold for about 15 years. Fast forward to 1991. Another Kennedy cousin named William Kennedy Smith was in trouble, but he was acquitted in a rape trial in Florida. The attention around this case also started a rumor that Smith had been at the Skakel home the night of the murder and potentially knew more about the case, but this rumor was found to be untrue. Mm-hmm. So just that a rumor. The media coverage around this trial, though, also brought more attention back to the Martha Moxley case, mm-hmm. the connections with the Kennedys and everything, and the Greenwich police were facing the heat again. So they decided to reopen the case, and they announced a new hotline and a reward for any information about the murder. This time around, Rushton decided to hire his own team 
of private investigators from Sutton Associates. He didn't want to deal with the police anymore, and he thought they could help him out. Mm-hmm. But their investigation didn't come to the conclusion that Rushton had hoped for. In the infamous Sutton report, which was leaked to the media in 1995, the investigators concluded that both brothers had lied to the police about their alibis from that night. This was also the first time that Michael would be considered a potential suspect and not a witness. So as we may recall, in the original investigation, Tommy had told investigators about the paper and watching the movie. Mm-hmm. But this time, he told the Sutton investigators that he didn't actually go back to his house at 9.30. But he stayed outside with Martha for a while. They flirted a bit more, began making out, and did some more stuff, mm-hmm. which could have resulted in her pants being pulled down. Mm-hmm. But that still wouldn't make sense why he wouldn't have been there if she had gotten attacked. Yeah. But he also said that he probably was the last person to see her alive. Now, Michael's story, again, as you may recall, he was watching Monty Python. But his story also changed. He told the Sutton investigators that when he got home from his cousin's house, he was super drunk and really horny. So he made his way over to the Moxley's and climbed a tree outside of Martha's window where he began to masturbate. Nah, that's crazy. He's a little weirdo. In a tape Michael recorded for an autobiography he was planning to write in 1997, he said, I pulled my pants out. I masturbated for 30 seconds in the tree. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I hope God never saw me. But then I woke up to Mrs. Moxley saying, Michael, have, have you seen Martha? I was like, oh my God, did they see me last night? That seems a little weird. What a little weirdo. And the fact that he recorded it and, like, thought it was normal, like, okay to put in, I don't know. It just, it seems a little strange to me. That up to a tree. Well, it just seems a little strange that he hid that fact and then decided he would put it in his book. But supposedly he thought at the time when he said he just watched the movie, came back, and went to bed, that if he had said he was at the Moxie's house, it would make him a prime suspect. Mm-hmm. Now, around that time when the Sutton Report was leaked, News also came out from a man named Gregory Coleman, who Michael had gone to school with. The school they had gone to was the Elon School, which was a really horrible reform school for troubled teenagers at the time. And I won't go too much into it, because that school could have an episode of its own. It was wild, it was abusive, manipulative, and it honestly did more to harm the students than try to help them reform. Rushton had sent Michael to the school after he got into a drunk driving incident when he was 17. This is where Coleman and he met, and at this point, Coleman met with a local news station and told them this. The first words he ever said to me uh, was, I'm gonna get away with murder, I'm a Kennedy. So that kind of also goes with what I was saying earlier about they really thought they were Kennedys. And, you know. I'm going to get away with murder, that's crazy. Obviously, This is just something someone said. You don't always know if it's true, but it is interesting. Put the curse on him now. Coleman also told the reporter that Michael gave him in-depth details about the crime. From what he said, Michael told him that he had tried to make advances at Martha, and when she rejected him, he went into a fit of rage and, quote, drove her head in with a golf club, end quote. Get the cuffs out, get the cuffs out. But obviously, there had been so much publicity about 
this case that sometimes you have to wonder if people are just trying to get the attention by spilling stories or if it's true. If they were just yapping? Yeah, they're just yapping. At this time, a Skakel family friend named Andrea Shakespeare was also talked to. And she came out to say that she had been at the Skakel home that night and Michael had never gone to his cousin's. She also said that she believed Michael committed the act in a jealous rage over the amount of attention Tommy was getting from Martha. So she only spoke up now? This is all I saw about this. So I don't really know. I looked her up. I couldn't find anything. But it's interesting, and it does go with the theory that they were just such rivals Mm -hmm. and so competitive. In June 1998, Connecticut State Attorney Jonathan Benedict ordered a one-person grand jury to look over evidence and speak to witnesses in the case of Martha Moxley. And a one-person grand jury is extremely rare. Mm -hmm. You don't see it often. But after 18 months and 40 witnesses, the grand jury indicted Michael Skakel for the murder of Martha Moxley. At this time, Stephen Skakel, another brother, was furious that Coleman had gotten the chance to testify about what he had heard at the Elan school, Mm -hmm. saying that he was constantly high on heroin and meth, and that he believed that Coleman did multiple bags of heroin a day. Therefore, you know, saying that no one should believe him. But a number of other students from the school also testified about Michael implicating his guilt while being there. Mm -hmm. On January 9th, 2000, Greenwich police issued an arrest warrant for an unnamed juvenile in connection with Martha's murder. Unnamed. Later that day, Michael surrendered to authorities, but was released soon thereafter on a $500,000 bail. I forgot they were rich. On March 14, 2000, Michael was arraigned for the murder of Martha in juvenile court. Why juvenile? Since he was 15 when it happened, they originally had the trial taking place in juvenile court. But by the end of January 2001, a judge declared that he would be tried as an adult. All right, good. The trial against Michael Skakel began on May 7, 2002, in Norwalk, Connecticut, he had hired a well-known local defense attorney named Mickey Trimmer. So, in the trial, prosecutors really focused on that one tape from earlier from the autobiography proposal as using his evidence as guilt. And Sherman really tried to argue against that, saying that it was being taken out of context, that the parts they were using made it seem guilty that he was a murderer while he was just guilty of masturbating. No, that was definitely a murderer. The trial lasted a month, and on June 7, 2002, Michael was found guilty of murdering Martha Moxley and was sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. You may wonder kind of what was going on in Michael's life. Yeah, he had a lot of time to do things. He went to the Elon School, obviously, had some trouble there, but when he got out, he did get help for his addictions and his issues. He actually tried to become a professional speed skier. That's a thing? Yeah. Um, he actually made a couple teams that made it to the Olympics, but I couldn't tell if he was on the team that made it to the Olympics or was just a part of the team, if oh. that makes sense. Yeah. He also got married in 1991 and had a daughter, but his wife soon divorced him after he had been indicted on yeah. this murder charge. After the verdict and Michael began his time in prison, he began to fight for appeals. Starting in November of 2003, He tried appealing that his trial should have taken place in juvenile court and that the statute of limitations had expired. Mm -hmm. On October 25th, 2007, the Supreme Court of Connecticut rejected this appeal. 
there's a lot more that went on in that period of time. It bounced from court to court, but what's important that is that it was rejected. Mm-hmm. Then on October 23rd, 2013, yeah, on October 23rd, 2013, Michael was granted a new trial by a Connecticut judge due to the inadequateness of his original lawyer, Mickey Sherman. Hmm. And in 2016, Michael was back in court with a new attorney claiming that Sherman only used him for media attention and argued that Sherman never showed any evidence that could have shed a light on Tommy's temper or other issues that could have helped him out. Yeah. He also talked about how there were witnesses that could have testified that he was at his cousin's. Mm -hmm. There were just so many other things that his attorney didn't do that he believes was just because he wanted the fame that Mm -hmm. came from representing a Kennedy, don't you know? And his conviction was then overturned. So he's a free man? Until December, when the Connecticut Supreme Court ruled to reinstate his conviction in an extremely divided 4-3 to majority vote. Some more stuff went on. It gets really rocky and a little confusing when it comes to the court system in this period of time, but in 2018, Michael was granted a new trial. Jesus. By the state of Connecticut, due to earlier the inadequateness of his previous attorney, wrong things that went on in the trial, specifically focusing on the multimedia aspect of his tape. Mm-hmm. Then on October 30th, 2020, 45 years to the day of Martha Moxley's murder, the state announced that they would not attempt to retry Michael Skagel stating that they could not prove that he was guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Jeez. So that's, yeah. This went on for 45 years? Mm-hmm. God, we suck with that. Martha's mom, Dorothy, also later said that basically there was nothing she could do. She had gotten him into jail before. She thought it was him. She knew it was him, actually. But if, they don't want, if they're not going to retry him, there's nothing she can do about it. Another interesting theory, though, that comes out of this story comes from Robert F. Kennedy Jr., Bobby Kennedy's son, the cousin. And in 2003, Kennedy found a man named Tony Bryant, who actually happened to be the cousin of Los Angeles Lakers star Kobe Bryant. Okay, that's kind of crazy. That's kind of crazy. Bryant went to school with Michael and Tommy and also knew Martha. And he had told Kennedy that he had two friends from New York who would come to visit. And on one of those visits, his friend Al met Martha and really fell for her. But he didn't understand why she didn't give him the same amount of attention she gave the other guys in the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So this story is very murky. Mm -hmm. But according to Bryant, on October 30th, they drove to Belhaven, where his friends told him their plan to murder a girl. Bryant was freaked out, and he left. They were already out of the car at this point. He left. Mm -hmm. And the next morning when he heard the news of Martha Moxley, he knew it had had to have been them. Mm-hmm. One, they said it, and two, he knew how obsessed Al, but even his other friend, were with Martha. Yeah. But Bryant refused to testify in any trial. Yeah. But he was willing to talk to Michael's lawyers. This case never went anywhere. There's off. There's a lot of scrutiny and kind of no one really knows if it's true because Tony Bryant also had a long criminal record at this point. Oh. It's one of those things that you don't really know, kind of like Gregory Coleman from before. Mm-hmm. That it's just. Do you believe them? Do you not? You don't know. Yapping. So in the media, this case hasn't actually been covered as much as you might think, mm-hmm. considering it has to do with a Kennedy. Yeah. 
but it has been covered by a few other podcasts and was also a topic of a three-part miniseries on Hulu called Murder and Justice, The Case of Martha Moxley, along with an episode of 48 Hours, which is where we got the diary entries and the other audio Mm -hmm. sound bites. Another way you could see this in the media is with Connecticut rapper Apathy. He has a song titled Martha Moxley, Rest in Peace, where he mentions both Moxley and Skakel by name and other details of the case. That's kind of cool, though. Any thoughts you have, Oscar? The fact that it took 45 years is just crazy. I know. So, do you think Michael really killed Martha? Yes, I do think he did kill her. Do you, like, what about all the stuff with Tommy? What do you think about that? I think he might be a little harmless, but I feel like Michael definitely did it. Do you think Tommy was covering up anything for Michael? Maybe a little bit. Maybe they were both in on it, but he, Michael, definitely hit her with a six iron. That's kind of what I was thinking, but I also read that Michael and Tommy had been estranged for years. Hmm. Basically, once they both got out of the house, they cause they didn't like each other. Yeah. So why would they cover for each other? I guess when it comes to it, they do got, they do got each other's backs. So personally, I kind of think they got the wrong brother. Really? So I know Michael basically confessed, supposedly. Supposedly. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I just feel like Tommy had much more of a reason. Mm-hmm. Because, I, I don't know, it's complicated because Tommy did straight up say that him and Martha were hanging out. Yeah. And people say that Michael would have been jealous. But I kind of feel like, to me, it would make more sense. In another one of Martha's diary entries that I read about, she also kind of talked about how Tommy would always try to get farther, like to second, third base with her. Mm-hmm. And she wasn't down for that. Yeah. So I kind of feel like, as Michael was saying with Tommy's temper, I kind of wonder if maybe, you know, they were making out, they were doing some stuff, and if he wanted to go further, and she didn't want to do that, and he kind of just lost it, especially if he had thought that he she'd been flirting with him, leading him on, like Michael had told mm-hmm. um, Martha that he thought she was leading Tommy on. Mm. I don't know. I definitely think it's one of them. I don't think it's Tony Bryant yeah, or not. a different sibling or anybody. But I don't know. Honestly, I think it could go both ways. But I don't th- I don't think either of them are innocent at all. They definitely covered for each other some bit. Yeah, they definitely did. But I personally think Tommy did it. To me it makes more sense for Tommy to have done it. Mm. I guess it goes, but I don't know. That's just me. What a story. So anyways, Thank you for tuning into this episode of Murderous America. Thank you, thank you. We hope you catch us next week for Wisconsin. On Wisconsin. So yeah, thank you for tuning in. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. Hope you tune in next week. Thank you. Bye.